0: Good morning. We are in um, Luke's Gospel, so you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And as you're turning there, uh, let me ask you a question. When we say the word, or when you hear the word disciple or discipleship, that's a churchy word, right? What comes to mind? How would you define it? Now, you might think of a of a follower, someone who follows someone else. You might in your mind picture a super fan all decked out in the gear of their favorite person or team. Maybe you're thinking of someone who maybe studies or subscribes to someone else's philosophy or theology. They're they're a disciple of so-and-so because they listen to them and read their stuff and follow them. If you've been... uh, Married for any length of time. You found out that you spend enough time with someone, you maybe start to act a little bit like them. You start to share some of their mannerisms and their idiosyncrasies. Funny words that they used to say or words you thought were funny, the way they said them, now come out of your mouth. Right? When you spend time with someone, when you're focused on someone, when you're following closely or you're with someone together, you start to look alike. So today, when I'm using the word disciple, I'm specifically trying to ask, what is a disciple of Jesus? Our mission as a church is to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make disciples of Jesus, who make disciples of Jesus through the Gospel. That is, through the good news that Jesus died to save sinners, that Jesus was raised again to eternal life, that those who have faith in Him partake. We share in both his death for our sins and in his life that we might gain resurrection and eternal life as well. So uh, we actually have a simple definition of disciple that we use. It says this, a disciple, in this case a disciple of Jesus, is a person who has been reconciled, meaning made right, reconciled into a relationship with God through new birth by trusting in the gospel and is subsequently Growing in a love for God and love for others. So a disciple is someone who, in trusting Jesus, partakes, is is a participant in the forgiveness, the death and life of Jesus, and starts through time, over time, by His grace, starts to look like Him, and sound like Him, and act like Him. Growing in a love for God and a love for others. Putting off the old and putting on the new. Bearing the fruit, if you will, of being a disciple. And the longer a disciple walks with his teacher, the longer and more closely disciples spend time with those they're following. Learning from them. Doing the things that they do. The more the disciple looks and sounds. Maybe even smells like his teacher, right? And that helps us as we look at this passage today in Luke chapter 9 because the definition of disciple here is being expanded for these people who have been following Jesus for a while. They're realizing that being a disciple isn't primarily determined by theological proficiency. How much do they know? What have they heard Jesus say and can they repeat it? It's not merely or primarily determined by that. And it's not merely determined just because they hang around a lot with Him. Just proximity. True discipleship. Jesus is opening up for His disciples and for us. True discipleship is marked by obedience to the call of Jesus to preach the Gospel and to practice mercy. And true disciples will be supplied sufficiently by both the power and provision of God. That's going to be our our framework for today. So, let's read our passage. Luke chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Luke chapter 9. And He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is God's word for us today. Now, like I said before, Jesus is expanding the definition of disciple for these men who've been following Jesus around. To this point, Jesus had been the one doing all the ministry. If you go back and read through the first eight chapters of Luke that we've studied... Jesus is the one who's preaching with authority and teaching and people are amazed. Jesus is the one who's healing the sick. Jesus is the one who's freeing those who've been oppressed by, by demonic forces in bondage. Jesus is the one who's breaking those chains. Jesus is the one who's extending mercy, who's showing compassion to the outcast. Jesus is the one who's raising the dead back to life. And the disciples whom he had called to follow him, are getting a front row seat to all that's happening. They're watching Jesus work. Because up to this point, being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple, sure involved listening, but it was primarily a spectator sport. They're just watching Jesus do what Jesus is going to do. Yes, they had to listen. Jesus taught with authority. You can bet because we know that they would pull aside and say, can you explain that to us a little more, Jesus? That was a little hard to understand, right? Because he spoke with both authority and he spoke in parables, which we've talked about. They asked questions. But up until now, being a disciple of Jesus seemed to mostly consist of following where he went and just being amazed at what he was doing. That sounds like a pretty good gig. But here, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus opens up a new chapter for his disciples on what it means to actually be his disciples. It's not enough just to follow him around. It's not enough just to be near him. Not just knowing what, and believing the things that he said and did and taught. But now, these really ordinary men were being sent out. They were called to, to go out and to say and to do the things That Jesus had been saying and doing. Now, we don't get an insight here into the internal emotions or psyche of the twelve who are being sent out. But put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. Right? We've seen Jesus do amazing things. We've heard Him say things that just are mind-blowing realities of the kingdom and of fulfilling of Old Testament prophecy, and now you're asking us to what? Right? So the nature of being his disciple is being expanded, and it shows us that disciples are not only called, but they're also commissioned. There's two parts now, not just being called to him, but also being commissioned by him as ministers, as missionaries, as ambassadors of this kingdom. And this is where it has implications for us. So this is the first thing we see. Disciples are both called and commissioned. In chapter 9, verse 1, we read that Jesus called the twelve together. This is echoing back to his individual calling of them to say, Hey, Peter, leave your nets and, and come follow me. Matthew, just close down the tax booth and come and follow me. Remember, these weren't super special people. These were just ordinary guys. What makes the difference in their lives is that Jesus has called them to himself. That's what marks them as different. And this calling together, gathering them together, reflects that idea and likely shows us that there was a lot of work to do. Remember, many of these men had families. Leaving their nets and following him didn't mean that Peter still didn't have obligations to his family for their fishing business. So whether it is that they were maybe, hey, between uh, healing this guy and raising that guy, let's... uh, I'm going to go home for just the weekend and make sure everything's cool and then I'll come back and join you again. We, we don't know, right? It could also be that there's just so many people. Remember, crowds of people have now gathered every time they get together. And so the work of meeting with people and caring for them and showing compassion and mercy, they were likely spread out amongst all the needs that were there. But Jesus calls the twelve together, his, his core team, if you will. And in verse 2, Luke says, and he sent them out. So what it means to be a disciple is not only being with Jesus, but being sent by Jesus. And this is what they were commissioned to do. Look at verse 6. They went through the villages. The gospel of Mark tells us that they went two by two. Luke just tells us that they went. Mark helps us uh, by telling us that they paired up. It was a buddy system. I'm always in favor of a buddy system. They went out two by two, partnered up into teams and went to town, town to town, village to village. And this is what they did. Preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Essentially, they were saying and doing what Jesus had shown them for months. What he was saying and doing. So he sends them out to preach the gospel in order to remember it I've alliterated it, and practice mercy. (laughs) Preach the gospel and practice mercy. And these, I think, are basic essentials of the, the commissioning of disciples. Disciples are called to Jesus and disciples are commissioned by Jesus primarily to do two things, to preach the gospel and to practice mercy. We read in Matthew 28, references the Great Commission... Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, Jesus says, all that I've commanded. And what were those things? Well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself, to lay down your life and your preferences for the sake of others, to boldly proclaim that the only hope the only freedom from sin, the only freedom from oppression, for, for new life now and eternal life and glory is found in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Loving your neighbor and preaching the hope that we have in Jesus. That's it. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, also wrote in the book of Acts or Luke, wrote the book of Acts. Um, so if you, if you want to do a uh, read as you're reading through, I know we're past that already in our New Testament reading plan. But if you ever want to take the time and just read Luke and Acts just back to back, it's phenomenal. It's like chapter one, chapter two. It's, it's really great. And in Luke, Act, or excuse me, Luke writes in Acts one, when Jesus is, is about to be taken up, ascended into heaven, he says this You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He is commissioning them out as ambassadors to bear witness. To both the gospel and the mercy of God. This, I think, is the universal commission for every disciple of Jesus. From the time Jesus walked on the earth, commissioned his disciples, and then ascended to heaven until the time when Jesus will come back. Hallelujah! Make war with His enemies, defeat them, and usher in the fullness of the glorious kingdom. Every disciple of Jesus is called to preach the gospel and to practice mercy. I think I'm I'm pretty safe ground to say this is our commission as well. We are called according to God's mercy. We are called by the, the preaching of the gospel. Right? You heard the message of Jesus and in His grace... Respond in faith because someone preached the gospel to you. And as a follower now of Jesus, you're being equipped and empowered to understand Him, to grow in Him, to love Him, to, to be equipped to, to learn, to use what God's given you to serve others. And He has commissioned us to preach that same gospel to others and extend the practice, the act of mercy. It dis, the, and that kind of mercy displays the power of the gospel at work in our lives, all to the glory of God. Now, this particular instance was new and unique in the life of the disciples. Remember, to this point, they were spectators. And Jesus gives them some specific instructions for this particular instance. Look at verse 3. You may have found this interesting as we read through it. And Jesus said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no staff. No bag, nor bread, nor money. Don't take two tunics. Let's stop there for a second. Jesus has called together the twelve and tells them with some urgency, okay guys, you're leaving like right now from here to go to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Just like I've shared with you. I want you to place your hands on the lame and the sick and pray for their healing. But don't go home and pack a bag and get your extra things Just go now, taking what you have. Travel light, Jesus is telling them in this instance. Now, I just said that the command to preach the gospel and to practice mercy is, I believe, universal for followers of Jesus. But I don't think it travels over into, but take no food or staff or an extra coat. I think that's a little situationally specific, and here's why I say that. Because if you read a little further in Luke, Luke chapter 22 to be specific, Jesus actually talks about this commissioning in Luke 9 when he's commissioning his disciples again for what's going to be a longer lifetime of, of hardship in being commissioned. Look at Luke uh, 22. You don't have to turn there. Um, Luke 22, verse 35. Jesus says to them, this is talking to his disciples, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? He's talking about Luke 9. When I sent you out before and I told you, don't take anything extra, just go. He asks them a very interesting questions. When I sent you out before, did you lack anything? Nothing. Nothing, they said. We had everything that we needed. In verse 36, he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. He's giving them a preview of the hardship that is to come for followers of Jesus starting with him. They're going to they're gonna kill me first and then they're coming for you. And they he said, look, Lord, we have here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, here's why I say that some of the instruction in Luke 9 is situationally specific. In Luke 9, Jesus says, don't take a bag. In Luke 22, he says, go get a bag. In Luke 9, he says, don't even take a staff with you. But in Luke 22, he says, get a sword. And if you don't have one, you should buy one. And they're like, we have two. He's like, that's good. So, what's happening here? I think it all hinges on the question Jesus asks them in Luke 22, verse 35. When I sent you out with nothing, no money bag, no knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. See, here in Luke 9, on this first commissioning, Jesus is giving them something that they might not understand for 11 more chapters. See, a disciple is called and commissioned. And a disciple of Jesus has at his disposal both the power and provision of God. There's a pastor who, who really invited me into ministry. Like, let me sit at the table uh, when I knew absolutely nothing and, and was really green, if you will. Greatly encouraged my faith while I was in college, and this man uh, served as a missionary overseas and was shaped by and and lived by a quote from a great missionary, Hudson Taylor. So this quote was passed through Pastor Doug to me from Hudson Taylor, and Taylor said this: "God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work." done God's way, will never lack God's supply. Or to put it into a positive, we'll always have God's resources. See, Hudson Taylor and my friend Doug believed that God had called them and commissioned them to continue His mission wherever He sent them. And they were confident, if God has called us to this, if He has sent us to this place, He will provide out of His abundance All the power and the provision necessary to see this work through to the end. A disciple has at their disposal and puts their trust in the power and provision of God. In this case, Jesus was encouraging these rookie missionaries. You've heard the message. You've seen the miracles. Now you go, right now, trusting that what you have is is enough that God will provide for your needs along the way. And it says that Jesus gave them, verse 1, power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. What they had been amazed that Jesus could do, they were now empowered to do as well. And they were told, trust that God will provide along the way. Don't wait until you get all the stuff you need. Don't wait until you you go home and make sure your bag is is properly packed. You have every, you know, extra thing you might need. Trust that God will provide everything you need along the way. And this makes sense when you read his instructions too, verse 4. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there depart. If someone welcomes you, you show up in a small village or a town with a message about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And someone says, please come and have a meal at my house. Come and stay with me. Jesus says, stay there. If someone offers hospitality, share the message with them. Don't go looking for someone with a a better house or better food. And don't overstay your welcome. See it as God's provision for you. Be grateful that God has provided for you through whatever hospitality comes your way. Trust that as God's provision. And in places where they don't want to hear what you have to say, verse 5, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, as an aside, this was a practice that the Jews would use anytime they'd go abroad. They would go to other countries, and as they would come back, before they would cross the border back home, they would shake the dust or dump the dust from their sandals as a way to not defile the promised land. And Jesus tells His disciples that they're supposed to do something similar, using something they would understand, to to explain to them, those who don't receive your message, that's okay. Shake off the dust and keep going. John's Gospel, chapter 1, tells us That Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Yet to those who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. Jesus is telling them, if they receive you, they're receiving me. If they reject you, then they're rejecting me. Don't let your heart be troubled. And then verse 6 tells us, and they departed. They, They said, okay, Lord. They went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere, meaning they must have covered a lot of ground. Now we don't know how long this was, verse 10, which we'll start in next week, on their return, we don't know exactly where they went or how long that the, the journey was, but discipleship was taking on new meaning for these guys. It wasn't just affiliation. It wasn't just being knowledgeable about Jesus' teaching. It wasn't just being part of the inner circle. True discipleship did involve all these things, but now it also involved being sent and continuing to preach the gospel and practice mercy. This, I believe, is a good filter for us as we assess our own walk, our own posture, our own reality as disciples of Jesus. Because I think we can get our heads around the called part, right? We celebrate regularly when we gather for worship as part of our liturgy, as when we celebrate baptisms. I point here where the tub might be, right? We celebrate the called part. And rightly so the mercy of God that He would extend it to us to welcome us in, to call us His own, to call us His beloved sons and daughters seeing God 's mercy to us, that we can be forgiven for our deepest sins, that we could have redemption from our greatest failures, is a remarkable reality and it's worth celebrating. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I don't want to stop singing and ce- singing about and celebrating God's mercy to us. But discipleship isn't just about being called out of darkness. We're called into the light, into a new and better kingdom. And as participants in this new life, as citizens of a better kingdom, we are also carriers of its core reality. And that's this, that the gospel of Jesus turns us from dead to life, transfers us from death to life. And that that message needs to be heard turned around and sent back out into a world that is in desperate need for the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. So as self-proclaimed disciples of Jesus, let me ask, do we see ourselves also as commissioned and not merely called? And not just theoretically. Like, yes, I understand that's supposed how it's supposed to be. But practically. Does the Gospel, the message of Jesus, does it, does it leak from our mouths anytime outside of this room? Does mercy come off of my fingers and your fingers towards others? Does compassion have priority on our watches and on our calendars and in our wallets? And if not, why? I think one of the reasons why it doesn't is because mercy is hard, (laughs) It costs something. The message isn't always a popular one, even though it ends uh, gloriously. That the ending of all this is remarkably glorious. Most people, upon hearing the message, might not like it after about the second chapter. Where we have to start dealing with sin. No one wants to have to face the reality of sin. And Luke includes an interesting tidbit here, and we're covering it here this morning in verses 7 through 9. Herod, the one who would eventually mock and beat Jesus and send him away to Pilate to be murdered, this guy hears what is happening with this Jesus fellow. Large crowds, a bold message, talk of repentance and a better kingdom. Some people were saying that Jesus was perhaps the prophet Elijah or even John the Baptist raised from the dead. And this concerned Herod because as he says here in verse 9, I I beheaded that guy. We get a little internal like Jiminy Cricket conscience action going on right here in Herod's head. Some of you don't know that reference because you're too young. He's thinking to himself, wait a minute, I killed that guy. Who, who, who is this Jesus guy? See, John, if you remember, John had called Herod out for his immorality and his sin. And Herod had him imprisoned and eventually beheaded. And so whatever's going on in Herod, maybe it's a little bit of fear. Maybe his tiny conscience is poking him. But Luke tells us Herod sought to see Jesus. And like it is through most of time, when powerful people want something, they find ways to get it, right? So Herod, who's a r- ruler here in this region, is seeking now to see Jesus. So not only is Jesus now at risk, but so is everyone who would associate themselves with him. These disciples who were sent out did not know it yet, but being a disciple of Jesus would cost them everything. Right now they're flying high. They're they're preaching a message that people are listening to. They're praying for people and laying hands on people. And people who haven't walked for for years are standing up. People who have been blind since childbirth are seeing with eyes for the first time. Dead girls are coming back to life. These guys are thinking, we're winning. And what they did not know was following Jesus was going to cost them their lives. History and tradition tell us that every one of the disciples turned apostles, messengers of the gospel. Every one of them, except for John, were martyred, meaning they were killed specifically because they would not stop proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And John was exiled to an island, basically solitary confinement for the rest of his life. In Acts, we read about Stephen, who wasn't one of the twelve, but was an early follower of Jesus who was stoned to death, literally rocks thrown at him until he died. Paul himself, who stood there and oversaw Stephen's death, is radically saved by Jesus. And Paul spends his life in ministry only to be killed by the Romans, probably by getting his head taken off. And on and on history goes and the gospel advances and it crosses all kinds of cultural and societal barriers not in spite of, but through the blood of martyrs for the cause of Christ. If you read through the book of Acts, every time the gospel makes a leap into another culture where it leaps over a boundary, do you know how it does that? Because someone is persecuted and likely imprisoned or killed. And every time that happens, as you read through the book of Acts, the gospel makes a huge leap over as, as the church, as disciples are scattered from their places of comfort and go to faraway places, cling to the hope they have in Jesus and faithfully proclaiming the hope that they have. In fact, in, in Acts 1 that we just read a moment ago, when Jesus is commissioning his disciples to carry on the mission, then the message, and he says, you will be my witnesses... The Greek word there, sorry to get all nerdy on you, that we have in English as witness is a word martus, which is clearly, as you can see, where we get the word martyr. This isn't just messenger. John lost his head. Jesus was crucified. Stephen was stoned to death. The other apostles were crucified, beaten, imprisoned, beheaded. And as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And later in Colossians 3, Paul encourages other disciples of the church. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have, past tense, died, even though they're breathing, and your life is now hidden in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Which prompts us to answer a, or ask a question. In what ways is our obedience as a disciple of Jesus hindered? And maybe hindered by fear. There are lots of ways that it can be hindered, but looking at what's happening here and Herod's interest in Jesus and knowing the rest of the story, in what ways is our Calling and commissioning as disciples, hindered by fear. Fear of ridicule. Fear of public shaming. Fear of persecution. For the disciple of Jesus, we have a shield against this fear. And that is if we are a disciple of Jesus, we are already dead. There's no need to fear persecution. There's no need to fear death because in Christ we have already died. Pastor Vody Bauckham asks the question How do you threaten a dead man? A man who truly believes for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. How do you threaten that man? The answer is you can't. The problem with most of us, he says, is that we're not dead yet. To which I say, ouch. Does our definition of discipleship contain not only the calling, but also the commissioning? And do we live as if we believe that we have the full power and provision of God at our disposal to accomplish the mission that He's given us? This is a question that I can ask in generalities, but each of us has to answer in specifics. Am I content to sit comfortably in my calling Without ever venturing into the costliness of sharing the gospel, of preaching the gospel. Without ever sacrificially giving mercy. Practicing it with others. If so, if I'm content to sit comfortably in my calling, why is that? Is it the pride of perfectionism? I just need one more thing. I need one more thing for the bag. Just to make sure... Is it fear of not having enough? Is it risk of persecution or death? Hear the encouragement again from Luke chapter 22. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. We lacked nothing. See, we're called as disciples of Jesus right here where we are. If you're here, Know that God in His divine sovereignty has placed you here. He has called you His own and He has called you here. Where you live, in your job, in your classroom, in the family that you're in. In this neighborhood, in this city, in this state, in this Midwest region, in this country. So that we might be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus. And that we would be a tangible expression of God's mercy to the world. See, being a disciple of Jesus isn't primarily determined by our theological knowledge or our proficiency. It's not by our nearness or proximity to Jesus. We are being called and commissioned as disciples marked by obedience to the call of Jesus to preach the gospel and to practice mercy and we will be supplied sufficiently by the power and provision of God for all that we need. And what is the end goal of Jesus sending His church? What's the end goal of disciples to carry on the message and the ministry? He calls and commissions his people so that the invisible church might be made visible through the preaching of the gospel and the practice of mercy supplied by the abundant provision of God. He has saved us. He is sanctifying us and he he is sending us. May the Lord work conviction and courage in us as disciples for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus the Son at the right time to rescue wayward sinners. That by your Holy Spirit you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. That you have given us your Spirit to indwell, to teach and to comfort and to equip And I thank You that in Your divine wisdom have chosen the means of Your church to to send disciples of Jesus out with this message and this ministry of of mercy. Do You encourage the parts of our hearts that are weary and that are weak Would you strengthen the parts that might be fearful? Help us to see what you called us to is so great and glorious that the only response is one of saying, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Encourage us now as we come to the table, seeing and tasting tangibly the grace of God to us in Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.